Geograve, and good evening. I'm Siobhan Garrigan, and you're very welcome to The Leap of Faith. After four weeks now of war in Ukraine and the shocking devastation this week of Mariupol, we consider tonight how to respond to the horror of this escalating violence and how also to prepare to harbour the estimated 200,000 refugees who will arrive here in Ireland. I'm delighted to be joined tonight by three guests. On the line from Jerusalem, the former Chief Rabbi of Ireland, Rabbi David Rosen, will help us to tease out the Jewish dimensions to the Ukraine crisis. Also, contrary to popular perceptions that Ukraine is an orthodox country, it is quite religiously plural, quite diverse, with about 10% Byzantine Rite Catholics and smaller Jewish, Hindu and pagan communities. However, the remainder are mostly Orthodox, and we'll be talking tonight with Archpriest Mikhail Nazanov, leader of the Russian Orthodox Church in Dublin. And finally, Professor Anna Rowland's work weaves the principles of Catholic social teaching with the work of 20th century female philosophers, she will explore for us how these traditions might speak to contemporary societies, especially in the face of violent populism, the return of authoritarian leaders and the escalating refugee crisis. But first, Rabbi David Rosen is American Jewish Committee's International Director of Interreligious Affairs. He's also former Chief Rabbi of Ireland. In addition to interreligious dialogue and education, his work involves mediation and peace building, and he's heavily involved in multi-religious engagement on ecological issues. David, you're very welcome to The Leap of Faith. Thank you very much. Delighted to be back with Dublin, even from afar. <laughs> well, President Putin has justified the invasion of Ukraine as a special operation aimed at and I quote, the denazification of Ukraine. But the president, Vladimir Zelensky, is Jewish and his family includes a great-grandfather, grandfather and three granduncles who fought against the Nazis for the Soviet Red Army. The three granduncles were all killed and other members of his family were among the one million Ukrainian Jews murdered by the Nazis during the Holocaust. How then can Putin use the term denazification to justify the war? Yes, it would be ludicrous if it wasn't so sad. Mm. I mean, this is obviously manipulation of terminology to serve his own particular interests. And I don't think anybody takes it terribly seriously. This is a propaganda war and he's utilising whatever weapons he can find. Do you think that there might even be an anti-Semitic element to Russians' invasion? And I'm thinking that there's been no comment uh, from the Russians that uh, Boris Romanchenko was killed in Kharkiv this week. He was a 96-year-old Holocaust survivor. Or that one of the first targets of Russian forces was a TV tower north of Kiev. And in the process, they desecrated the Holocaust Memorial at Babin Yar, the scene of a horrific massacre of 33,000 Jews during World War II. And Zelensky noted that the invasion began on the 24th of February, 22, exactly 102 years after the foundation of the Nazi party. There's a picture emerging, is there not? 
Maybe. I, I'm not sure that it's an, an intentional one mm. on Putin's part. I, I don't for one minute suspect Putin of being a Judeophile, but mm. I think that there's a bigger picture here than simply the Jewish one. I think it's, from my point of view as a Jew, I'm very proud of Zelensky's position and that he's taken. Uh, but I, I would be as supportive of him if he was not Jewish, and I think Putin's <laughs> actions would have been just as destructive and terrible had there been not a Jew on Ukrainian country. Thinking of Zelensky's Jewishness, he was quite roundly criticised by a number of people in Israel this week because of his comparison of um, the current situation in Ukraine to the Holocaust. Do you think he's he's maybe lost a little favour in Israel because of it? Or do you think that he really does have Israel's support in the stance he's taking? Well, there's no question he has the overwhelming support of the vast majority of Israelis. Mm -hmm. uh, our government is playing uh, somewhat of a more, if you like, subtle game because it's concerned about Russian influence over Syria and Syrian forces in the north and worried about escalation there. And I must say that from a personal point of view, I'm disappointed that it's not more forthright in its condemnation of Putin, but I understand their particular dilemma. Uh, I think that his comments were unfortunate from an Israeli perspective. I'm not sure that they were really targeted at Israel. I think they might have been targeted more at world jury, but I don't think they served his purpose very well. If he would have said uh, there were so many Ukrainian uh, Gentiles, Christians, who laid down their lives for Jews during that time, I think that would have been understood differently and that would have been understood positively. It was almost as if he was whitewashing those Ukrainians, and there were no shortage of them, who were collaborators with the Nazis in the extermination of Jewish communities. In c continuing to think about where influence could be found that might possibly um, make any sort of a difference, your international director of interreligious affairs for the American Jewish Committee. And in that capacity, you must routinely engage in dialogue to make religion, uh, which is so often seen as part of our problems, part of our solutions. Do you think, is there any role uh, that interfaith dialogue might play here in U U Ukraine? Well, there's always a role, uh, and I'll mention something in just a moment. But or maybe I'll go straight to it. Uh, on Monday, we had a multi-faith gathering here in Jerusalem, which I was helped convene and which I compared. Uh, heads of the Catholic Church here, of the Muslim and Jewish communities, of the Druze community. And it was a, a, quite an impressive demonstration of solidarity with Ukraine and with all victims, all who are suffering as a result of this terrible conflict. I was asked by an interviewer afterwards whether I thought that Putin would listen to us. Actually, the call that we issued was directed to Patriarch Kirill, who, of course, is very close to uh, Putin, and that's part of the problem as well in terms of the institutional role of religion in Russia. And I said, well, if Patriarch Kirill would listen to us, that would be a wonderful bonus. I'm rather sceptical as to whether our call would have any impact upon the powers that be that are behind this terrible carnage and invasion. But I said, during the period of the Second World War, Jews 
are asked, where are the voices of religious leaders? Did they really think that those religious leaders were going to influence Hitler? No, I don't think they did. But they wanted that sucker. They wanted that solidarity. They wanted to know that the world is with them and providing some kind of moral support. And that's our responsibility as religious leaders and as representatives of our community, to be able to call for an end to violence, even if that doesn't happen, primarily to be able to express the solidarity with victims of that violence and give them a sense of support and succour in this terrible time. Is that the same event, David, where there was a letter signed by 150 faith leaders to Patriarch Kirill? Okay, I heard that you... Um, tried to deliver it um, to the the Russian Orthodox well, uh, Church, but were turned away, and it got pinned to the door, which the gate, which reminds me of Luther, which you know yes, was very hard at it, the time, but it worked very well in the end for much needed yes, reform. Well, that symbolism was intentional. Um, uh, the letter actually had already been signed and sent before this event, I see. but the text was used here and the representative of the Russian Orthodox Church, an Archimandrite in Jerusalem, was asked to receive it, to pass it on to Patriarch Kirill, and he declined. I so see. as a result, this the text was pinned to the outside wall of the Russian Orthodox Church downtown Jerusalem where the gathering took place. So often, in addition to, as you've described, the importance of showing solidarity, there's also um, a way in which much later we learn of backdoor diplomacy, um, which gets people turning toward peace even before official treaties are signed. Do you know, is there any of that going on, for example, between Pope Francis trying to persuade Patriarch Kirill to tone down the propaganda being spread by his churches? Um, Do you think there's a role for noting that Christ was not one for war and that he commanded his followers to seek peace? Is there any way that high-level Christian theologians can have any um, influence here, do you think? Well, Pope Francis and the Archbishop of Canterbury and many other religious leaders around the world have tried to do their best. There have been conversations and also even one of the leading rabbis in Russia has also called on Putin directly. Um, he doesn't seem to have taken any of these calls terribly seriously. As I say, the most important thing in the face of such evil is at least to stand up for good and to do whatever good we can, and for religions and religious communities to be acknowledged as being on the side of peace and of reconciliation. But in the end, one never knows where one casts one's bread upon the waters, where it may end up. Mm -hmm. We have to try our best. On the Day of Judgment, we will not be asked whether we succeeded, but how hard we tried. Thank you, Rabbi David Rosen, for all you shared with us tonight on The Leap of Faith. Thank you very much, Ravon. Father Michael Nazanov, leader of the Russian Orthodox Church in Dublin, is rector of the Patriarchal Monastery of the Church of Holy Apostles Peter and Paul in Dublin. He was born in Sevastopol, Crimea, and studied theology in St. Petersburg and in Paris before working and teaching in Russia. He's been ministering in Ireland since 2011. You're very welcome to The Leap of Faith. Hello. Hello. We were listening there to the interview with Rabbi David Rosen, and we'll come back to some of his comments a little bit later. But first of all, the census is taking place next weekend. 
The last one showed a 37.5% increase in Orthodox Christians living in Ireland, and it's likely the new one will show a further increase. What are the origins of the people in your flock? Are they mostly immigrants from Eastern Europe, or are they converts, perhaps attracted by the Divine Liturgy? Uh, Our parish uh, is quite big, I would say, and... uh, Although we are part of Russian Orthodox Church, uh, there are many different nationalities in our community. There are many Russians, Ukrainians, uh, people from Moldova, Baltic states, Irish people who converted into Orthodoxy. So it's a very multi-ethnical community, in fact. And yes, uh, what is going on uh, actually in Ukraine it's very painful for us. As I said, we have a lot of Ukrainians and Russians, and uh, we are really worried about the relatives and uh, what we uh, want to do and what we have to do. It's uh, to pray, and for every during every liturgy in our church, we pray that the bloodshed stops, and we try our best to support uh, our Ukrainians in our parish and our community to help them bring their families here or uh, to just to support whenever they ask, whatever they ask. Has the the outbreak of uh, war in Ukraine, has it caused tensions between the Russian and the Ukrainian members of your community? No, I don't think so, because uh, it's true that uh, our people might have the different political opinions, but we are all gathered uh, around God's table <laughs> and we are coming to the church for the common service, common worship, common prayer. And I can say that we have people from different parts of Ukraine and uh, they all are very good people <laughs> and they all uh, try to, uh, to pray with all the rest of our community and you, you're probably about to get quite a lot of new members. Uh, the estimates are that there'll be 40,000 Ukrainian refugees here in Ireland by the end of April and up to 200,000 um, in the months that to follow. Hmm. Uh, what is your church doing to prepare for this influx of refugees? Yes, indeed. Uh, it's already second Sunday when we uh, got a new people in our church, the people who just moved uh, from Ukraine. And uh, all these uh, weeks before we, we uh, collected uh, our help <laughs> to, to help them s- to settle in Ireland. And uh, we try our best to, to meet them, to, uh, to find accommodation for them. Uh, I can say that uh, a few days ago I saw my neighbor Clean the house where I live, clean the house, clean the windows, put in the Ukrainian flag on the window. And so he he's expecting the refugees in his house. And I think uh, it's a great thing. I admire the people like this. And I admire these thousands of Irish people who, uh, who gave their houses, who are ready to share their houses with the families. Mm-hmm. Because it's very important. I think... As we are Christian, and for us, cross is in the middle, in the center of our faith. Mm. And to serve Christ, Christ 
Christ, when he was on the cross, he was suffering. And uh, he's, since then, he's always with those who are suffering. So it's very important to us to, to help the, all the people who's, mm-hmm. who is in need, who is suffering now. I hear you when you say that you see that the, the role of the church is to um, pray uh, for peace and to support the refugees. Other members of your church have have uh, taken the stance that they ought to criticise the patriarch's implicit support of the war. I'm assuming that that's not something that that you would do. And if it's not, then then tell us why. Tell us mm-hmm. tell us why when 290 mm-hmm. of your of mm-hmm. your fellow clerics mm-hmm. in in Russia have have written and to the troops asking them, you know, to consider their mortal souls and condemning the war. Why, um, if you wouldn't sign that or a similar letter of protest, mm-hmm. why you take that stance? I think it's not about to blame someone or to judge someone. I think uh, it's not about hate. It's about uh, it's about unite people, not dividing them. And uh, important thing for me is to show our love to the people, not to make a political statements, but to serve them instead. And uh, I don't remember Christ uh, blaming Herod or uh, calling to fight Romans, but instead he helped the Jews or to Roman centurion. And uh, or maybe another example, it's the uh, Good Samaritan, the famous parable. <laughs> the Good Samaritan, they didn't uh, ask the political views of this uh, beaten man. He just helped him and he didn't blame, he didn't uh, seek the, to revenge those who beaten him. <laughs> fighting. But, so it's about yeah, love. It's about unite, uniting people. But the Russian army is currently its activities are not about love. There, there is a lot of violence being wrought in Ukraine on devastation on Ukrainian people. And to 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 think of what um, David Rosen was saying a few minutes ago, isn't it the role of uh, religious people to put pressure on religious leadership? And I wonder what you think of um, Patriarch Kirill, who is just so closely supportive of Putin. The people who criticise Putin don't hate him or want to blame him. They're holding him account for his actions. And that's what we would hope um, you might, yeah. The first thing which Patriarch Kirill did, he sent to all the parishes uh, the, the call to pray for the peace, that the bloodshed stops. And if you read his uh, what he's really saying, you can find easily that his major care is to to stop the bloodshed, and to uh, to be uh, with all those who are suffering, and to pray that the bloodshed stops. And what we exactly doing exactly doing in our parish? It's important to pray for the for the bloodshed stops. Another another parish, which I'm sure is also mm-hmm. praying, is the Russian Orthodox Church in Amsterdam. And I understand from what I've read about them that they felt that um, Patriarch Kirill was not merely uh, encouraging all the parishes to pray for peace, but using Putin's propaganda 
as part of his own sermons. So diatribes against the West, um, talk of denazification of um, Ukraine is supporting. I don't just speak Russian. You, no, you're just. <laughs> I spoke. So I'm reporting what has yeah. been said by the Russian Orthodox Church in Amsterdam to the press here. And they have left the Moscow Patriarchate in protest at what they see as its complicity in war. They don't think that there's a role for a patriarch to be that closely aligned with a political leader. Do you think your church in Dublin might do the same? There are only three reasons to to stop to commemorate the patriarch. And none of these reasons is just uh, uh, might be applied to this situation. So uh, I don't think that is, it was a good decision for the parish of Amsterdam. I have many friends there, by the way, and I don't think that was it was the good decision because it's again, it's just uh, not to divide people, not to, to choose a part in the situation, but it's about to unite all, all of them, all these people, all the civilians, all the soldiers, they are all us, um, all Christians, all humans. And maybe the best way, from my point of view, is to, to keep peace first in the community and to pray and to do our best to serve those who are suffering, to serve these refugees who are going to come in Ireland. Thank you, Archpriest Mikhail Nasnov for joining us tonight on The Leap of Faith. Thank you. The Jesuit Centre for Faith and Justice in Dublin carries out social analysis and theological reflection in relation to issues of social justice, including housing and homelessness, penal policy, environmental justice and economic ethics. Our guest tonight gave a talk there last night. She's Dr Anna Rowlands, the St Hilda Professor of Catholic Social Thought and Practice at Durham University in England. And she's just published a new book called Towards a Politics of Communion, Catholic Social Teaching in Dark Times. Anna, you're very welcome to The Leap of Faith. Thanks so much for having me. Last night, you invoked Hannah Arendt, who wrote, Even in the darkest of times, we have the right to expect some illumination. Is it a right still, do you think, to expect illumination to arrive? And which people should we be looking to for it right now? Yes, I think what Aaron meant by that is that there is something so deeply stirred within our souls that when we see extreme darkness in the world, there's a kind of cry of anguish that's almost involuntary that issues from us. And in that moment, we feel that we have some right to see the world go in the direction of that which is good and that which is just. And I think that's right. I think it's just a statement that for me anyway, just sort of deeply resonates. Um, and I think for her and, and therefore also the answer I would give to your question about where that illumination comes from, that illumination comes not necessarily from clever thoughts and perfect concepts or from people who can just put their finger on the zeitgeist. Rather, it comes from lives that are well lived. That's what Arendt says um, in her book, Men in Dark Times. And those who show us the way, who open up a kind of pathway in the darkness, are those who are willing to live with some sense of courage um, and a kind of struggle towards justice in times that are dark. And she talks about those lives as the flickering lights around us. So these are not necessarily people who are certain and who feel confident that they know the way forward. 
but who risk venturing with others, experiments in ways of living that open up new futures and new pathways. And I think we do see those moments, those contexts and those people all around us, sometimes um, in relatively um, forgotten or neglected places, not necessarily in the places uh, where the microphones are, if you like. (laughs) Could you give us an example? Yeah, I mean, uh, I think that the obvious example at the moment is the extraordinary outpouring of willingness of people to host uh, Ukrainians in their own homes. Um, So to to open uh, the hospitality um, of their domestic spaces to others, to turn those into sites of political resistance and real humanitarianism. So I think that's the most obvious sort of context in which we can see some light in the darkness at the moment. Equally, I think there are some very brave individual Russians at the moment who are willing to stand with placards, to stand in silence, to face arrest, to be a contradiction in their own context and to call for peace, for for a sense of a united humanity, which both of your previous speakers have in different ways, um, I think, alluded to. And do you think that really um, the role of religion, as our our last uh, contributor remarked, is mostly to do with prayer and keeping very firm a focus on unity and not fracturing? Or do you think that sometimes um, a more politically disruptive voice is needed from religious practitioners? Yeah, I mean, my view would be that religion, that Christianity, that's the religion from which I can speak, both as a scholar and as, a, as a, somebody who, who is a committed um, Catholic myself. Um, I think that the role of Christianity is inevitably political with a small p, because our claim is to have a vision of what it means to be human beings living together in a world orientated towards truth, um, beauty and goodness. And if that's our claim, then in that case, and, and as, um, as was already being pointed out previously, at the centre of our Christian iconography is Christ on the cross, um, unjustly crucified, um, but achieving a greater transcendent good through his willingness to stand as a contradiction to the powers, the torturing powers um, of the world. So we are political, not because we seek political interference, but because the logic of faith itself makes a claim on the whole of our humanity and is fundamentally orientated towards relationships of equality, um, of justice and of peace. And therefore, we have a Christian duty uh, to speak out um, when political forces uh, do anything which uh, fractures um, the possibility of that goodness and that justice in human relationships. And the most obvious travesty in that regard is war itself, especially war fought on unjust terms. We have a legacy during the 1930s of Christians in Germany, particularly figures like Dietrich Bonhoeffer and Karl Barth in establishing the Confessing Church, issuing the Barman Declaration. And I would compare the recent statement by Orthodox theologians standing and speaking um, out against their own tradition um, as being in continuity with the Barman uh, Declaration. That document was about saying no in the name of faith to the use of faith by politicians. And I think one of the problems mm. with, with Putin's stance is that he is claiming the mantle of religion um, deliberately as a conscious tool of propaganda, um, words of manipulation, as David Rosen was pointing out at the beginning, in order to give a kind of divine foundation for this war. So unfortunately, if the political powers invoke religion, um, then religious people too have to then speak a truth to that political power. And of course, the theologians who've signed uh, the the statement and the uh, clerics who signed the earlier letter uh, protesting the war, um, the the risk to them of imprisonment um, is is great because you're not even meant to be calling it a war. Thank you very much, Professor Anna Rowlands, for joining us tonight. Thank you for having me. And that's The Leap of Faith for this week. 
Thank you for listening and please join us again next Friday evening. The Leap of Faith was presented by Siobhan Garrigan. Sound supervision was by Padder Carney. The broadcast coordinator was Jarlath Holland. The researcher was Sinead Kennedy and the producer was Sheila O'Callaghan. 